The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we, your church, come before you today, we come before you as humble sinners saved by grace, and we thank you for your abundance of kindness shown towards us. We were slaves to sin, and you set us free. And as we focus in on a slave and a master relationship today in your word, may you blanket the whole time in this section with the remembrance firmly planted in our hearts and in our minds that we are bondservants of Christ, set free from sin to live for you. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Please have a seat. Leander. Leander was not always a slave. When he was a young boy nearly 20 years ago, he lived with his family. He lived in a place pretty far away from Ephesus. But as his childhood land became scrutinized by Rome, they realized that they were rebellious. They they weren't complying with the way Rome would want them to be ruled, and so raids were conducted in his childhood land. Devastating raids, horrific raids, raids that would come and take families and strip them apart, killing fathers and older sons, but then also plundering the children, those that would be ripe for the slave market. This is what happened to Leander and his siblings, his brother and his sister, He was able to travel with them up into the slave market in Miletus. But there, when he was sold into slavery, on that day was the last day he saw both of them because they also were sold into slavery. And although they could be close to him, he would know nothing of them. And as sad as Leander is at times to think about that, he is grateful. He's grateful for his master, Marcus, his master who has had him in his home and has been good to him all of these years. Leander prays that the same goodness is befalling his siblings, his brother and his sister. But once again, he can't know for sure if that's the case because masters can do as they please with their slaves. Leander has heard the stories from other slaves in his own home He's also heard from slaves out in the city as he interacts with others. He also quite frequently hears his master's friends when they talk around the banquet table of how they put their slaves in their place and with the punishments that they place upon them. He trembles to think of all the beatings that take place, all the beatings that are endured. Just last week, Out in the marketplace, he saw a slave who was missing an eye, and he heard the story that his master was angry with him because he was careless in the cleaning of the floor and missed a spot. 
So the master stabbed him in the eye in a fit of rage, telling him that he will be more careful next time if he wants to keep his other eye. Leander remembers how he was punished more often, more frequently when he was younger, when he first came into Marcus's house. But he's learned his ways. He's learned how to comply with the rules of the house. And now he rarely receives more than a, just a stern look from Marcus if he's out of place. He does his duties diligently, and he's been given much freedom along the way. But even in Marcus's house, some of the slaves are subjected to treatment that, that Leander can't even imagine being subjected to. And, and in these times, he's thankful that he has clearly masculine features and that his hair is coarse and not refined and not to the liking of his master. Now that he's a man, he is safe for being subjected to exploitation like some of the younger, more effeminate slaves are. When he thinks about the whole enterprise of slavery, he's very confused. It is his lot in life, but the authority wielded over slaves by masters doesn't seem natural, doesn't seem right. He's been thinking about this almost without ceasing ever since yesterday. You see, Leander became a Christian about three years ago. And yesterday was one of the days he is able to gather with the church in Ephesus, which is where he's a member. He's a member of the Ephesian church. And the church gathers at a time when him and other slaves like him can come and meet together. And he is blessed. And not only are there slaves there, but there are also masters that come and are part of the fellowship of believers They all come together to celebrate their salvation in Jesus Christ. That's what brings them together. Not that they are slave, not that they are a slave owner, but that they have been purchased by Christ. However, the divide in the church is obvious. Slaves, masters. How is it supposed to work? How does it work? Praise be to God. The Apostle Paul must have known that this was a question that we were dealing with in the church, and we received a letter. And the elders of the church read the letter to us yesterday. And in the letter, there was, there was this section that was specifically telling about how relationships are to be conducted in the household. And in that section, not only were there their husbands and wives and parents and children. But clearly, the Apostle Paul was thinking about slaves and masters inside the home. He touched upon this near the end of the letter. And plain as day, he gave instructions for us as slaves, but also the masters that were able to hear. God's instruction, as it was given for Leander, to remember that he belongs to Christ. That was clearly in the instruction. Leander, a slave, belongs to Christ. He was purchased with the blood of Christ. And no matter where he might find his position in this life, whether it's slave or free, because that's always a possibility in Ephesus, he is to serve as he is serving Christ. The more he considers this, 
this instruction that was given to him just yesterday, he realizes that he has freedom in the greatest sense of the word of freedom. He's been freed from sin. He has been freed from the debt of sin. He belongs to Christ because Christ, with his own blood, purchased him. Christ, his master, Christ, set him free from the bondage of sin. And now because he belongs to Christ, he is free to serve anyone that he is under in this lifetime as he serves his real master. Whether it's an earthly master, someone he works for as a free man, he can serve them as he serves Christ. Suddenly, Leander thinks, well, but what if Marcus becomes a believer? What if Marcus were to become saved? Perhaps even in my service to him, I could be a witness. Perhaps the Lord could use me to share the love of Christ with Marcus. Leander says to himself, not only would I be freed from the tyranny of being under a slave owner if I served in this way, but I'd be able to shower the love of Christ on another if I served him as I serve Christ. Leander prays, Lord, not that it is required, but what a blessing it would be to have Marcus become a believer. Lord, you have given Marcus a heart that is kinder than most masters, but he is still enslaved to sin. Rescue him, Jesus, like you rescued me from that sin, that debt. Give him freedom. Make him yours like you've made me yours. Leander can't help but smile as he thinks again of the meeting yesterday at the church where the elders were reading Paul's letter. It spoke directly to him as a slave, right to his position in life as a believer. But of course, it also addressed the masters. And if Marcus were converted, he could also do the will of God from his heart, render service with a good will as to the Lord. Leander realizes that he will never forget the message. He will never forget the message that was spoken yesterday. So much was in it for him as a bondservant of Christ. He is to render his service as to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, as I have taken us through this story of Leander. I did so because we need to understand the setting of the text that we're going to be in today. We need to understand our passage more clearly. It's a fictional story of a first century slave in the time of Ephesus when this letter that we have been studying would have been delivered to that very church. But the story of slavery is complex. It's a complicated story, and a simple story cannot tell, and I, I don't pretend that the story I just told tells the story completely. Slavery has been present in every corner of the globe from just after the time that creation happened. Anywhere humans have been, 
Slavery has been there as well. Slavery is complex. And this story about Leander and his slave experience is just a small slice of that story. But I told it because if you're like me, if you're a modern reader of scripture, when you come to a passage on slavery, you come to it with your own bias, your own understanding of what slavery might be. And as Americans, we tend to think of slavery that plagued our country, the way slavery was conducted in our past. And we automatically assume, well, when, we, when we're thinking of slavery, that must be what was being talked about in the text, the industrial slave practices that were found back in our history. But when that's in our mind, we're prevented from considering what's actually before us in the text as it was given to the original audience. See, this section of Ephesus that we've been going through and the section that we're in today follows right along with instructions that, are be given, that have been given to households. I mentioned already in the story, husbands and wives in a home, children and parents in a home. And right after that is this section on bond servants and masters. And in the context of first century Ephesus, that would have been in the home. Yes, there was other types of slavery, but in particular, this text is speaking to a relationship that is largely foreign to us. And I know as we move into this area, we're going to be challenged in new ways. In the other relationships and husbands and wives and children and parents, we can relate to that because we know that there's a close bond there. We understand the bond that is between a husband and a wife. We understand the bond that's between children and parents. But when it comes to slavery, a master and a bondservant, we have to recognize and even mentally ascend to the point where, well, there was something in society, there was a societal fabric that caused that bond to be there. That was how it was, it was welcomed. That's how it was used. It was because society had a social construction that allowed that bonding to take place in that way. And we do not have this immediately available to us in a context that we would understand as slaves and masters inside of a household. So as we move into the text, we need to have our eyes open to where we can find application for something that we might understand today. And I want to do this in two distinct ways. The first is to clearly state for all of us to hear and for all of us to be able to repeat that slavery in all of its forms found throughout time, throughout the world, is an aberration of God's design. Absolutely, we have to be able to denounce slavery. In every form that it is found, it goes against God's design for the way humans are to interact with one another. So we start from that place. But then from there, we have to continue and, and move forward and realize slavery continues. It's ongoing. It's still happening. And since this text in particular is looking at the household, I want us to think about slavery in terms of how we 
And our homes are still promoting slavery in various ways. Because that's how we're going to have the biggest impact and continue in our commitment, along with Christians that have gone before us, to abolish slavery wherever it's found. So that's what we need to work on first, is taking part in the, in the abolition of slavery wherever we find it. And then the second is to take the gospel-centered approach that we're going to see that allows us a bondservant and a master to interact in a home in the time of Ephesus, which is clearly in the text in Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, and then apply that where it naturally fits in, in relationships with what we're most familiar with right now. And that would be in an employer and employee relationship. So we're also going to look at that. But the first thing that we're going to look at is the ongoing effort to abolish slavery. I know most of you are familiar with the way I, I preach a text, going most of the time just line by line through the text. Today, you've probably already picked up on a little bit different approach. And even as we go into this first point about abolishing slavery, our ongoing effort to abolish slavery, we're using just the first part of verse 5 and the verse, first part of verse 9. And I'm using the word bondservant and master. That's it. Bondservant and master. I want to start there because it's so profound to think about that this is how a church was being addressed in first century Ephesus. And it's a relationship that's no longer present, at least not in this church. Bondservants and masters are no longer found in this church. One of the criticisms of the Bible, you might hear it, you might hear people mention it, is that it never outright condemns slavery. You have a hard time finding slavery just condemned in Scripture. However, as students of the Bible, as those of us who pour over the Scripture, we know that if we are to live as the Bible says we should, as God says we should by his word, slavery can't exist in that type of living. It won't exist. It can't remain. In a thriving Christian setting, you're not going to have bondservants and masters indefinitely. As modern readers, we do want that condemnation. We realize that slavery in its forms is wrong when we read about it, when we see it. So we want the condemnation. But when we go to the scriptures, we, we forget to understand that when they were written, as they were written to the original audience, they were written to a minority people, not a people of great power. As Americans, we tend to think of the American Christian, the greatest nation on earth, should be able to do whatever we want to stop something. But Christians, as they were receiving these original writings, were in lowly positions, minority positions, oftentimes slaves. Not making up the dominant by any means. Even as the scriptures in the New Testament were being recorded, those believers that were receiving the letters, even as my fictional Leander would have had to process that from the position of being a slave in a household. But the truths that are proclaimed in the scriptures, in those early epistles, those letters, 
the truths found in the Old Testament, absolutely earth-shattering truths. Earth-shattering truths. Because if you apply what is given to us in scriptures to real life, it completely undoes man's effort to squash another man. It completely undoes the ability to manipulate and to abuse, whether it's a a government institution or uh, any kind of manipulative practice that goes on in business. Scriptures undo that when we live by them because God's righteousness is brought to bear upon those institutions. And to prove this, I'm going to ask two questions. Well, let me see. One question. Don't want to get ahead of myself. I'm going to ask a question. First off is this simple question. Who is in this local church? That's the question. Who's in this local church? Whatever your answer is, it does not include slaves and masters. A local church has been addressed in the letter of Ephesians. And there, at that time, bondservants and masters. That was commonplace, but not found here in this church. So although the Bible has been wrongly used in the past to promote slavery, we have to also stand by and say it's done great things to abolish slavery when it's been lived out. When the truths of Scripture, when the righteousness of God are applied onto the institutions of man, it does great reforming work and changes it. So church, this is where I want to press ahead with this first point in our ability to apply the truths that we find in Scripture to the slavery practices that we still find today. And where are these, you might say? Well, once again, I return to the comment that slavery is complicated. It's a complicated problem. It's complex. And it varies because slavery is on a scale. It largely depends on how restricted an individual is, how they ended up where they are, and then how they can get out of that. So it can be a wide range from slightly restricted to fully restricted, shackles and chains. But where does this exist? Well, it still exists in the industrial sense. There are mines that are run by slaves. There are uh, different factories that are staffed by slaves and manufacturing. There's child soldiering that goes on. Those children aren't there of their own will. And then there's the sex industry. And the list could continue. There are many forms of slavery that take place in our modern time. And how do people get caught up into slavery? Just as they have back when Leander was a boy. There's kidnapping that occurs. There's there's, uh, taking of individuals through times of war and then placing them into slavery. Then there's indenturing yourself. You might be in debt and say, well, I'm going to pay off my debt by enslaving myself to another. And human trafficking in its various forms. Even as I just mentioned, these forms of slavery that are still present today, 
we tend to think, well, that's, that's in another country. That's in a foreign land. That's not here. And that's true. But remember, slavery is complicated. It's complex. And us being a more wealthy and a rich nation, we tend to funnel money into these areas where slavery is practiced, if not outright here amongst us. And again, it's the severity and the restriction of freedom can vary along different, different paths for people that are caught up in slavery and its forms today. And I want to ask a few questions to help us get to a vantage point of where we can see where slavery is occurring right now, where decisions that are taking place in our homes could have an impact to diminish slavery around the world. First question, who here is willing to pay the actual production costs needed to bring nutritious and delicious food into your house? Who here is willing to pay the actual production costs to bring nutritious and delicious food into your house? There's question one. Question two, who here is willing to protect women and children from sexual exploitation? It's question two. Who here is willing to protect women and children from sexual exploitation? I ask these two questions because they relate to modern forms of slavery. And they relate to modern forms of slavery in a way that we actually could have an impact on. Households present here, Pillar Bible Fellowship households could have an impact on modern day slavery if we take a look at these two questions honestly. There could be more, but we're on a, a bit of a time frame. So let's deal with them by taking them in order. The first question was regarding the true price of food production. How does this question relate to modern slavery? Well, you see where there's an artificial suppression of actual prices being paid for the production of food or a food commodity, then there's an extreme pressure at the bottom end of that production to cut as many costs as possible. And when you are looking to cut costs, then you're willing to pay for something or not pay for something in order to produce the good and still maintain some profit. And our food supply is no exception to this. I've been farming with my father-in-law and with my brother for almost 10 years now. And when I first started filling out the hiring paperwork on the farm, I quickly realized that the forms that were being handed to me, the official documents, were not quite as official as I would have liked. So I signed up for E-Verify, which is a program available for employers here in the United States. It's a voluntary program. And the first year I signed up for E-Verify, it was a pruning season, and I ran 14 employees through E-Verify, and only one of the 14 employees had legitimate papers that could legally work in the United States of America. This is voluntary. This isn't required. You don't have to do this as an, as an employer. But I saw what was happening. I had enough discernment to realize if there's this much flow of illegal activity in the labor force, then people are being exploited. 
This is leading to human trafficking. People are being hurt by this practice. And what I saw happening, it continues to happen. There is an abundance of an illegal labor force in our country. And it's heavily used in the agricultural industry, in the production of our food. And since commodity prices are not a direct reflection of the actual costs of the food being produced, there's that downward pressure I mentioned of, of a force present to cut costs. You want to cut costs so that you can still stay in business. And so if you're not careful, it's very tempting to pull from that cheaper labor source because there's people that want to do the work and they'll, they're willing to do it for less. But when you pull from the, the illegal immigrant labor force, which you can't blame them for being there because they're looking for a better way of life, they're coming from a more impoverished nation trying to make a better living for themselves. But in, do, in so doing, they have to use human traffickers to get here. They have to pay someone to get them through all that's required to get into our country. And when they do this, they're beholden to that trafficker. They owe funds. There are threats that are placed against their loved ones back wherever they came from if they don't pay. Their movement is restricted. Their ability to work is restricted. Because if they don't pay, something bad might happen. So they work. And they work no matter what the conditions might be. And they're exploited. And they know they're here illegally, so they have to exist basically beneath the surface, is the way I like to put it. Always avoiding any kind of law enforcement, using the back channels, black market, in order to exist, to keep the money flowing. And if someone won't hire them, they'll go to the next place until they get the job. And we, Christians opposed to slavery Christians, because we are. We promote this behavior by not taking enforcement action seriously, thinking immigration laws aren't that big of a deal. So they remain lackadaisical. And vulnerable people come in search of a better life. We also promote this behavior by not paying attention to what goes into the actual cost of production for the food that we want to eat and feed to our families. We're just focused on paying the lowest price and being content with it. And lastly, we promote this behavior by not taking care of the sojourners that are in our midst, those who live here as our neighbors, who could use the protection and care given to them by a Christian. This is our first example. Now it's up to you to think about how you can make a difference in this area when it comes to the next time you go to purchase food. I hope you think about it a little bit differently. But there's another area we would need to touch upon for modern forms of slavery. And it has to do with the sex trade. I asked who would be willing to protect women near them and children? I asked this question because women and children are 
70% more likely to be exploited in the, in the sex trade. And it's not necessarily our women or those close to us or our children, but I use this to, to remind us that this is the demographic. These are other people's daughters, other people's wives and their children that are being caught up in this form of modern slavery. And this form of slavery exists because there's a a rampant appetite for sexual misconduct. We're aware of pornography. We're aware how that creeps into every home with an internet connection, every cell phone with a data plan. We know that it's widely consumed. That has a whole other way of exploiting women and children. But the area I wanted to focus on is when that is partaken in, it, what it does is it leads to further exploitation of women and children in the sex trade. It increases that appetite for sexual misconduct. You might be thinking, how have we gotten here? Church, we're in a passage that's dealing with bond servants and masters. There is modern slavery that's still taking place. So we're dealing with this topic of slavery in an area of human exploitation because decisions that we make in our own households have an impact on where these slavery-type things, restrictions of of, um, freedom of movement are happening, exploitation. We need to be aware of this so we can be careful in the way we conduct ourselves and not to promote the hampering of fellow image bearers in the way that they would be able to seek a, a good life. And how by remembering that as a bondservant of Christ that we are to render our service as to the Lord. So if you are young in particular and dabbling with pornography, realize that this is having an impact on people like your sister someone that would be like a mother to you someday. And seek, seek help in that area. You would not want to give yourself over to another in your, in your mind or in your ability, your physical union. Because that'd be outside of what the Lord would want you to do with a good and a pure heart. But likewise, you need to be careful about being vulnerable or to protect those who are vulnerable to the sex trade. Not going along with that exploitive behavior. Not going along with it when it's talked about by your peers. When it's brought up at the parties that you attend. Bear in mind, also, that it would be wrong to go into working in this industry. It wouldn't be an appropriate thing for Christians to give themselves over to, to say, I'm going to make money in this industry. And our church is large enough, we probably know people who do make their living in some type of sex trade, whether it's production or even establishments. And we would want them to come to know Christ, to be rescued from that. And as a church, we would have to become their friends, their accountability partners, someone who would walk beside them. And that could be challenging to do, knowing their past. But I think we could do it. 
if in the time of Ephesus there could be bond servants and masters that attended one and the same church, I believe we could overcome an obstacle such as that. Those were just two areas. We just kind of blitzed through two areas that we as households could have an impact on continuing to abolish slavery in its modern forms. And we must be mindful of the power of the gospel to rescue people out of these forms of slavery. And I want us to continue to work in ways where we would promote the abolishment of slavery wherever we find it. Maybe as families, you'll discuss and find more areas. These are just two. Where we can have an impact, a direct impact. But the passage does have another area of application. It has an area of application in the form of the places we work. And this is where we're going to turn our attention to now. The ongoing effort to render service as to the Lord. The ongoing effort to render service as to the Lord. Once again, starting out with the first part of verse 5, first part of verse 9, bond servants and masters. Both were given instruction in this text. The remarkable thing to me, as we're going to get into this text, is that they're given instructions, whether it's the bondservant or the master, independent of whether or not the other one is a Christian. So from their perspective, whether they were a Christian bondservant or a Christian master, they're given instruction and told to behave a certain way because of who they are in Christ. That is what made the difference. That's what made all the difference. And it's no different for us. We have to understand who we are in Christ as we go into this next section. And this is the closest thing I could come up with for bond servants and masters is our employee-employer relationship. And as we just discussed a whole lot on modern-day slavery, I hope you realize it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a stretch to get all the way to employee-employer, but it's what we know the most. And there is some good application here for that. And it is a widely used application when you look at how others take this text. It's what we have. It's what we're familiar with. So what governs the employee-employer relationship? How is it that the employee and employer are supposed to be? Well, as Christians, no matter which position you have, as a bondservant of Christ, you are to render service as to the Lord. Much like the church in Ephesus, which had bondservants and masters, we have employees and employers represented here this morning. So into the text, beginning with just verse 5, bondservants. This is the subject if we were to bring it over to this application I'm, I'm directing us towards, the closest comparison we'd ha- we would have to bondservant would be employee. The bondservant is like an employee. Continuing on, it says, obey your earthly masters. This is what's commanded, is obedience. The employee is to follow the rules of the workplace. 
But how do you know what those rules are? Many workplaces have employee handbooks, employee directives, or whole HR department that'll let you know what the rules are. You don't have to hang on every word of what your boss says in order to know what you're you're supposed to do. But you're supposed to be obedient. And I I know for me, as I've been working for a larger, uh, this larger corporation this last year, I find it much more difficult to render a a loving and caring service to a corporation that I don't even have a, a face or a name that I can connect with. That's been a challenge for me with American Airlines. But as this obedience is carried out, it's supposed to be carried out with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. And the word fear, we've already seen two weeks ago, we looked at it twice, actually, when we were looking at being submissive to one another and husbands and wives. In verse 21, it talks about Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Similar word to the fear that we're looking at today. And then near the bottom of that section of the text, verse 33, wives respect your husbands. Again, that was the same word that's rendered fear here today. So with fear and trembling, the bondservant is to obey the earthly master. And it's supposed to be done with respect. Respect or fear. Continuing in the verse, it says, with a sincere heart. This is all supposed to be carried out with a sincere heart. When we take this relationship between a bondservant or a slave and a master and apply it to our employee-employer relationship, this is the one area I think that we can probably really grab a hold of and say, I could do that. I could have a sincere heart in the way I serve at the place of my employment. Because having a sincere heart is internal. It's something we can control. It's something we have control over. And our heart is something we can prepare as we go into a relationship. And you do this, the text says, as you would with Christ. And this is the best help I think we can find from the, this passage is a comparison that as we serve, we are serving not just another image bearer, but we're serving the one who saved us. We're serving Christ. And in order to approach another sinful human and to keep up obedience and respect and fear, all the things that are being told to us to do in in sincerity, that's challenging. But then to be able to take this other part of the passage where it says, as we would with Christ, as you would with Christ, and look at that person and realize, I want to serve them as I would serve Christ. Christ has saved me I belong to him, and therefore, I'm going to serve this person that he has put over me, my employer. Approaching the relationship in this way has a way of melting any iciness that might be there in the relationship or softens any hardness of heart. It has to. And it helps undo what the text says next, which is, which it says not to do by the way of eye service, So as we go about the way we conduct ourselves, we don't do it with eye service, not just working while the master's eye is on us, but as a bondservant of Christ, we realize that 
Everything we do is going to be have, have to give an account to our real master, to Christ. We don't have to wait for a supervisor to walk by to show that we're about our business because the one who's in heaven is keeping track of all things. It's going to keep a much better account than anyone here on earth. And then another section here in verse 6 is people pleasers. So you don't want to work in the way of eye service, but you don't want to be a people pleaser. And this can always be a danger for us where we revert over to operating under assumption of a fear of man. We want to be aware of that because fearing man over fearing God is an ever-present danger. As we go into this next section of the text, partway through verse 6, beginning with the word but, this is at the heart of where we, we need to be focused today. It says, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. These 27 words right here, beginning with but, ending at the end of verse 7, it's the main theme of our passage. And it governs this relationship the bondservant and master relationship. And we could say this would govern our relationship between an employee and an employer. You could also lift it out and say, well, this could really govern any relationship that God has put me into. It's a deep and a profound section of text. As one of my professors at seminary would say, he would say, this is worth many cups of tea to sit and ponder over and to meditate upon. And you know why it's so worth our time to spend upon? It's because it's driving us to the gospel. Jesus went to the cross and gave himself up as the perfect atoning sacrifice for our sins. He purchased us with his blood. So we belong to him. We were slaves to sin, but he has made us his. We belong to him. And as an example, next to Christ on Calvary was what we call the penitent thief. And we know that he didn't have anything to give to Christ. He had nothing, no earthly possession that he could give to our Lord and Master. But what did he do? He confessed his need for a Savior, and he placed his faith on Christ. And that was it. He didn't place his faith on Christ as a man, placed his faith on Christ as the Savior of the world. And Jesus rewarded him by telling him and praying that he would find entrance into paradise and into heaven. So when we are placed in a situation which seems impossible to us, either as an employee or as employers, if we are a Christian and we realize we have a master who is Christ, we can give ourselves over to serving him in that situation, in that impossibility, and he can receive the glory. Sometimes this means that we have to stand up for the truth, and it costs. It costs us a lot. It costs us in the terms of earthly consequences for defying the rules of man. 
And as your elders, we had to come to this place not too long ago when we were looking at meeting or not meeting in person. And we said, it's worth the cost. We will go to jail to meet as a church. And you might find yourself in a similar situation in work where you say, I cannot go against what I know to be true. And I'll pay the the price. I'll lose my job over this. I will take a stand. But other times, we can go along with what's being asked of us, not because the person that's, that's over us writes their name on the check that's received to us, because we, we work for someone above them. We can render service to them as a bondservant because we're a bondservant of Christ. And we can render service as working to the Lord. We can work for the one that actually created them, even in the challenging circumstance. Verse 8, it says, Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. This can be done whether you are free or a slave. Whatever anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. So we work in this manner. We, we know our Lord is keeping that accurate account. We don't have to trust a man or a woman to keep track of what we're doing. God is keeping track. And then the next verse, verse 9, switches over to masters. It starts out with masters. We've looked at bondservants, and now we're looking at masters. And can't we put great stock in titles? We can put great stock in titles of whether we're a manager or an owner. Here it's master. Employers can be beholden to their titles at times. But then as the verse continues, it says, don't use that. It points us right back to saying, do the same to them. To masters, do the same to them. So the same instruction that was given to the bond servants, down to the master, master, what are you supposed to do? Well, do the same thing that the bond servants were supposed to do. What's that? Bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. The same instruction. Therefore, it makes sense. Threatening would have no place there. There's an admonition against threatening. Christ never threatened. So as masters, as employers, there's no need for you to threaten. Christ loved to the end. The verse ends with, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. So as we stand before our maker, we realize our great equality is in Christ. It's not in the position that we have here on earth. And in fact, any vying for position here on earth isn't going to get us a better position in heaven. It really depends upon the way we conduct ourselves in the position we have, how our hearts are. That's what makes a difference. That's what God's looking at, is our heart that we would live sacrificially and conduct ourselves accordingly for we belong to Christ. 
the bondservant and the master, the employer and the employee. Either way, the conduct is to be as a bondservant, as one who renders their, servant, their, their service as unto the Lord. He purchased us. Do you realize that we were slaves to Satan before we were purchased by Christ? Do you realize that? That we were destined for the slave market of hell. But we were rescued away from that by Christ working in us. Therefore, all of our service is to be rendered unto him. I know we've all probably looked at this passage before, Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9. And I'm not sure how, as you've looked at it in the past, you've tried to place it in your life as you've studied it. But now as a church, as we've looked at it together in this way, we have to admit that the exploitation of humans in many and varied forms is still taking place. And we have to do something to continue to abolish that, to abolish slavery, to stop the affront to our Heavenly Father where image bearers would be diminished in any capacity, such as happens in slavery. The first century church in Ephesus received this letter from Paul that carefully directed them in their interactions with one another as bondservants and slaves, how to conduct themselves, regardless of whether they were the bondservant or the master, the application was the gospel. The believing bondservant, regardless of whether he had a believing master, was to conduct himself as if he were serving Christ. Paul carefully directed the master in the same way. Whether or not his bondservants or slaves were believers, once they gave themselves to Christ, that, bond, that master was to treat his slaves with respect and love. And over the years, there's been a, a faithful application of the gospel in such conduct to the point where now we can say, praise be to God, there are not slave ships coming to our shores. That's no longer found. And we know that there has been work done to abolish slavery as it has been faced. And we have work, more work to do. Because although there are no longer slave ships, there are still shipping containers there are still hidden compartments and vehicles that smuggle people. And there are still dangerous routes that are taken to get people into our country or across national boundaries around the world. And from that, exploitation occurs. And I urge us to consider what our role might be in discouraging this type of behavior from continuing to abolish slavery where it exists in its many forms on the planet today. And as we end our message, our great motivation must always be to declare Christ as we declare ourselves as his bondservants, rendering our service as unto the Lord wherever he directs our path. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for doing a saving work in our lives. We would have 
no way to even understand what it means to be a bondservant of Christ in, the, in a good context, apart from knowing what we've been saved from. And that is the, the pit of hell because of our sin. But knowing that you have done a work, you've given yourself, you've given your, your only son, Father, so that we might have salvation, that has given us the identity that we, we can say, yes, I can claim to be a bondservant of Christ. And from that position can render service, whether I am a free man or a slave, to whoever is appointed over me in a way that shares the love of Christ in that service, in that conduct. Lord, continue to work to abolish slavery through the power of the gospel. It does take time. We are not ignorant to the fact that it takes time to undo the depravity of mankind. But we ask that you'd continue to do this sanctifying work in our homes, in our land, and around the world. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.